The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 11th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about all the moves and non-moves at the NBA trade deadline as the Pelicans kept Anthony Davis and the Sixers moved on from number one pick Markel Fultz. We'll also discuss the new movie High Flying Bird, a slice of life from Steven Soderbergh about an agent's wheelings and dealings during an NBA lockout. And finally, we'll assess the opening weekend of the Alliance of American Football, the latest entity to try to make spring football a thing. <laughs> Stefan Fatsis is off this week. Sitting in for him is the great Gene Demby of NPR's Code Switch and of Philadelphia sports fandom. You were too kind, but thank you, man. <laughs> great to have you here. I'm excited to hear your thoughts on the process. Oh, man. It's finally the, over. Yep. The ending of said process. Also with us from our studio in Brooklyn is Vincent Cunningham of The New Yorker. Also great. More in New York than, uh, than Gene and I. But what, what's up, man? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing much. I'm happy to be here. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The big news at the NBA trade deadline was that the Lakers' attempt to pry Anthony Davis loose from the New Orleans Pelicans came to absolutely nothing, with the Pelicans reportedly turning down the Lakers' offer of essentially everyone on their whole team, who is not LeBron James, plus a couple of draft picks in exchange for the 25-year-old unibrowed all-NBA power forward. Now, after Davis and his agent, (laughs) Rich Paul, who also happens to be LeBron's agent, Failed to engineer a trade to L.A., the Pelican star player is extremely awkwardly back in uniform (laughs) with the Pelicans. He played on Friday and Saturday after the NBA reportedly told the team they'd be fined $100,000 per game if they didn't put him on the court. Um, Gene, even for the NBA, this is uh, fabulous and awkward as a soap opera. The funniest thing to me was Magic Johnson, the Lakers president, saying this weekend that the Pelicans weren't negotiating in good faith, which is pretty much exactly like when Trump shut down the government and Lindsey Graham said the Democrats weren't working in good faith. Yeah, like uh, Braun <laughs> and his whole army like sort of sent all this subliminals. Like, I mean, they basically sabotaged the market so uh, that Anthony Davis could go to no other team but the Lakers. And the, the Pelicans didn't want to play ball. It's funny you mentioned um, that uh, Davis is back in uniform and it's very awkward because I, it's, it's actually much more interesting to watch what happens with the Lakers now because all of those dudes were going to get traded. Um, literally all of them, save LeBron, were going to get traded. And now they have to figure out a way to make this work for the rest of the season. Yeah, in that same press conference where he talked about the Pelicans operating in bad faith. I think we need to have a national conversation about the misuse of the phrase (laughs) bad bad faith. faith, But in that same press conference, (laughs) Vincent, Magic Johnson was like, you're treating these players like babies. They're professionals. Like, this is how the the business works. Right. That's such an odd distortion. I mean— no, you're you're treating them like people who are under contract with you, you know. And what one of the weird things is like how quickly this has changed the sort of um, the the conversation of freedom vis a vis trades and players under contract for like mm-hmm. a literal year and a half. You know, after I think it's like the Darren Williams trade for me is always stands as the um, the the sort of totem of like, oh wow, like this guy they just traded him away because he they knew he didn't want to be there, and that has you know, changed over the years from 
uh, an idiosyncratic decision made by one team to now being a sort of hard reality that if a player says he doesn't want to be there, it almost becomes this obligation. The Paul and George one of the things is like, well, the Pelicans can just, yeah, Paul George, right. Mm-hmm. It's like, actually, the, the owner can just decide not to do that. And and now all of a sudden, that's like understood as, as a front. But it's like, well, no, we don't want to do that right now. Um, it's so interesting the way like these sometimes these trends which are really more notional than anything like all of a sudden like they just hit a hard wall of just like one person's decision. The crowd reaction on Friday was so weird. So he gets booed at home in, in New Orleans and the pregame introductions. He gets booed when he touches the ball and then actually but when he shot and it went in then the fans cheered. <laughs> <laughs> It's, like. <laughs> and I I actually don't blame people for any of those reactions. It's all it feels like kind of coherent mm-hmm. Absolutely. to me. Like they want their team to be good. They also want him to be the centerpiece of their team, the literal centerpiece of the team. Uh and also he very much doesn't want to be there. <laughs> um it's interesting, right? I mean, because they are in in this find themselves in this weird situation now where um he has also sort of, uh, he also made it clear that he doesn't want to go to a bunch of places. And so he sort of killed their leverage in a lot of ways too, um, which is it was, which is also unprecedented to Vincent's point. Like he hasn't said, he did, hasn't just said, I don't want to be here. He's like, I yeah. don't want to be in any of these teams, but these, <laughs> I think he named three teams originally. And then they were like, and the league sort of suggested that it'd be tampering if he only said, I want to go to these three teams. Well, he also put in a bunch of fake teams That's like right. Milwaukee, because there's no way Milwaukee is going to trade for him. That's right. And so it essentially seems like it's down to maybe the Lakers and the Knicks, which mm-hmm. is basically what everybody thought it was it was before he came out with this list. But I'm why would he want to go to the Knicks though? I mean like if you if you were well, leaving the Pelicans, right, to go to if you want to compete for a championship, why would you go to the Knicks? That doesn't make any it's not even a lateral move, right? It's like a <laughs> Because it's a beautiful city with a rich history <laughs> of not winning in basketball, but it's a great place. So Anthony, just don't don't even don't mind. That's also on. true of New Orleans. <laughs> All those things are absolutely true of New Orleans as well. <laughs> I'm curious what you guys think yeah. of this idea now that Rich Paul, the agent, one of the most powerful people in the league, he, the, the way that this is, is talked about now is that Paul and Davis tried to execute this power play, mm-hmm. tried to force the Pelicans to deal him to the Lakers – now because the Celtics can't bid until the summer. And then Brian Windhorst of ESPN was saying after the trade deadline, I couldn't believe how my phone blew up at 3 p.m. with people mocking Anthony Davis and Chris Paul, agents, other teams, league officials saying they really screwed up. Do you guys have the sense that Rich Paul overplayed his hand here? That um, I, I guess just, you know, wh- how, how this whole thing played out, does he come off looking kind of foolish? Yeah, I think that in some way he does come off looking a little bad. It, it clearly didn't work out the way that he uh, – and when I say he, Rich Paul, I really mean he, LeBron James, <laughs> another part of this, um, thought that it would. But th- I think that we're in a stage of entities like this testing their power. Yep. So in some ways it's a useful exercise still for them, I think, to say, you know – all right. I mean, this was a very idiosyncratic thing, like the whole the Rose Rule by which uh, Davis couldn't go to Boston. to Boston. There were so many little variables here that maybe this wasn't the perfect test case, but I think it was still fruitful as an exercise for the league to see what's possible for players, which seems to be LeBron's larger project to like test the limits of what a player, an individual player, uh, reasonably talented, can. And when you think about those little variables, that's how Durant got to Golden State is because of the little, you know, the bump in the salary cap. cap. Mm. Like these larger trends that are happening, you still need to have these kind of weird idiosyncratic Mm. tweaks or moments or things that aren't necessarily predictable to have things play out the way that they play out. Right. And it might be a while before we see another like useful test case, you know, just because there are so few players of right. Anthony Davis's pedigree. I mean, I guess you know, Kawhi Leonard's another as so maybe a, a useful uh, approximation, right? And we, we actually I think thought that um, this was going to happen with Giannis, but the right. Bucks are the best Good. team in the yep. in the East this year, mm-hmm. but you could have totally seen this happen right. with him if they hadn't like what's going on with the Bucks now is what 
the Pelicans wanted to accomplish with mm-hmm. Davis, and you see the extremely divergent paths those two franchises are going to take now. I mean, it's, 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 it was interesting because before the trade, everyone was talking about it. Like, look, there hasn't been a player of this caliber, of this consequence um, um, who might move. It might be the most consequential trade since, like, Jabbar got traded yeah. from the Bucks, um, like, literally 45 years ago, whatever that was. And... Um, there are all these because it didn't happen. Like there's all these sort of cascading effects, right? Like that it's, it's been consequential because nothing happened, right? I mean, you end up wasting. The Lakers are basically going to waste a year of LeBron's, like the last few years of his prime, right? I mean, because there's a good chance they might not make, might not make the playoffs this year, right? I mean, there's a really good chance they might not make the playoffs this year. And if Davis becomes available and wants to go to LA, that won't be for. That might not happen until he's like a legitimate free agent, which is the summer after next, right? And so LeBron twenty twenty. So he might be LeBron will be. 35, 36, right? I mean... Well, that's why I think you get the sense of entitlement. Like, this isn't supposed to happen. Right, that's right. We want Anthony Davis. He (laughs) needs to be here now Mm -hmm. because time is running out on LeBron. And I think the last thing before we move on to the Sixers is that there's this tension between large market teams and small market teams. And Mm -hmm. you feel like the Pelicans are... It it makes sense for them to wait. I think it's not they're not doing this just to troll the Lakers or anything. But their but future is like one of the big downstream consequences of him leaving if that happens. But but I think there is a sense that there's a bit of standing on principle and this idea that we're not small market teams like us. You know, Oklahoma City has gotten obviously pissed off about mm-hmm. about various things over the years <laughs> that we're not going to let these teams bully us um, and let these players bully us. And that, I think, Vincent, is another um, scenario in which mm-hmm. this, is a te- this is a test case, really. I think that there is like a, there was that apocryphal story about, I'm not sure if it's true or not, that, you know, Greg Popovich had reached out to the Pelicans' ownership and was like, don't let the Lakers bully you. And, you know, you just you saw a little bit of that with Kawhi as well. Um, mm. There are these sort of individual stands that seem to be able to be made in certain uh, situations. I don't know if that's Lakers specific, uh, LeBron specific, or but there is. I mean, I, 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 neither do I think that like the Pelicans were trolling the Lakers, but there does seem to have been uh, some kind of some willfulness there. That who knows if it would have been the same if it was in a different situation. But the Lakers lost to the Sixers on Sunday by a lot of points. It was one forty three to one twenty. Mm. Uh, if the Lakers lost the trade deadline, then at least in the very near term, it seems like the Sixers won it. They were the the big winners. Uh, they got Tobias Harris from the Clippers, giving them a ridiculously good starting five of Harris, Ben Simmons, uh, Joel Embiid, Jimmy Butler, and J.J. Redick. They also traded Markel Fultz, the number one pick in the 2017 draft. He went to Orlando for forward Jonathan Simmons and some draft picks. Gene, this is obviously interesting given Fultz's story and how he lost the ability to shoot and the questions about whether it was a physical or mental issue. But it's also interesting because it signifies that the process is over in Philly. The franchise is done accumulating assets and it's going all in on winning now. It's, it's been interesting to watch this last, I guess, like eight months of Sixers machinations, right? Um, because of this, the, the very... Sort of amb- the, the ambivalence that you can hear in Sixers fandom about the end of the process. I think there was one people sort of romanticized it a lot, but also um, uh, uh, there's like now that people have to cash in their chips. Now there's going to be a lot of second guessing about whether these are the chips. I mean, these are the the, the deals they should be making. Um, and right. When you have assets, then it's all theoretical. It's all hypothetical. It's, now it's, they ha- now they have these literal <laughs> basketball players. <laughs> they have actual basketball players, right? I mean, it's one of the in a weird way. The Celtics are sort of in this perpetual. They're not in the process because they were never bad. They actually managed to rebuild without being like without cratering. But um, they're always in this sort of perpetual um, cycle of like we will have more picks and more picks and more picks. And now you have this. The, the Celtics have this team that is both like loaded, is like st- uh, stacked from top to bottom, and also. They have, I think they have more picks that are that might be conferred to them. And it's like at some point yeah. it's like, y'all, like, chill, like it's enough. <laughs> like, you know, like I mean, they're still making like we're gonna flip these great pieces we have for better pieces. Like, what are like what are we doing at some point? At some point, you just have to decide on what you want your living room to look like, right? You can't just keep keep swapping out the furniture. And like, um uh the faults, I think faults uh was one of the reasons he was in particular so romanticized was that he was a homegrown guy, right? Um and so or he would have been. I mean, had yeah. he actually played more than like 500 minutes. Do you have sadness about how that played out? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, 
that whole situation was, I mean, obviously you guys talked about it before. It's so bizarre. Um, and it sort of underscored, I think, it reminded me of all the ways in which we as, as as sports fans, particularly basketball fans, what people are talked about in this very like sort of like these are widgets you plug in, right? Um, about like how much of this is like a this is these are like actual in this case like teenagers we're talking about, right? Um, people who are actually dealing with. I mean, Markel Fultz was not a heavily recruited dude. He like had this growth spurt. He he went from like you know a dude who might have been like a good mid major player to a like a number one pick in like the course of like you know thirty six months, right? And like the questions about, I mean, it just, I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to have this like level of scrutiny suddenly on you as you go through this sort of this 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 unprecedented sort of collapse of your basketball ability. Um, you know, he wasn't built the way that a lot of the other like blue chippers were when they sort of grow up yeah. under the scrutiny. You know, and so like it, watching watching him for the most part, like from all by all accounts, he's like a really good dude. He's really like, you know, like really present and is a really good teammate. Um, but watching him sort of have to navigate, like have to be picked apart all the time and sort of psychoanalyzed by like by people who literally know nothing. We know nothing about still like what even the, the circumstances are, right? <laughs> um, it just like reminded me of how much we often talk about these people just as like sort of machines and not as just, you know, I mean, 19 year olds. And, yeah. You know? Vincent, kind of the strangeness here is that a couple of years ago, if if Fultz had been drafted in 2015 instead of 2017, the Sixers would have been the perfect franchise f- for him because they were just running out the clock for Absolutely. for all these years. They they took Embiid and Saric right. too, mm-hmm. and didn't even want them to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he could have fig- figured <laughs> things out um, in that kind of obscurity yeah. that we're Same talking about Simmons. that he'll Simmons now find in Orlando. Mm-hmm. And then their, their timeline totally changed and he just wasn't, they didn't have the ability or interest to wait for him anymore now that they have Jimmy Butler and they're in this this mode where they, they need to start winning the East, mm-hmm. you know, this year. Yeah, I think that's totally right. There's just a, he came along at this moment and it, like we talk about the end of the process who knows if we would still be thinking of them in this like future oriented way if it were, you know, right now if they had Fultz and let's say they didn't, they hadn't done this Tobias Harris deal or whatever, you know, maybe we'd, uh, for example, if they get kicked out of the, in the second round this year, I think it will be understood sort of catastrophically. It will be for me because I oh, love absolutely. watching them, by the way. But yeah, um, absolutely, it would be a disaster. Yeah, but if it was, yeah, it w- it'd be terrible. But if he, um, if he were still there, I think maybe our expectations would be along some other line. But, um, but yeah, it was awful timing. I mean, Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are too good to be in that other mode. They're just, they're too good. And if next to them you have a guy who, like, clearly there's something, you know, something happening. It just gets really, it's just dark, you know? So I, I'm, I'm wishing him the best. I have a lot staked in him getting better. You know, I, I want to believe that it's possible for him, for whatever it is that's been ailing him, to get better. So uh, I'll be watching him in Orlando. It's so crazy how the East just got so interesting so fast after mm-hmm. being the such a cesspool for so long. I mean, the so the Raptors got Marcus All mm-hmm. at the deadline. The Bucks got Nikola Mirotic. And as I said before, the Bucks. In terms mm. of point differential, in terms of record, they have an argument to be actually yeah. the best team in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have a second round if things go according to form, and it's hard to see how it won't, at least in the first round, where you'll have the Raptors, Bucks, Celtics, and Sixers. Two of them aren't going to get to the yeah. finals. It's going to have massive implications for free agency. Yeah. Like, did this, did this catch you by surprise that the East all of a sudden – became like the more interesting conference. One of the things that's been fascinating about the sort of asymmetry of of power in the NBA has yeah. been why the East is so bad. Like it's been impossible to figure out exactly why, like what like sequence of events led to the East being this like anemic um, conference where none of the superstars really played absent LeBron, like none of the top flight players and all the all the top 10 players have been in the West. And that's not just drafting, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that keeps happening. Maybe they just like better administer teams in the Western Conference or whatever. Um, but it's, it's fascinating that all of those things is sort of like reversed in eight months. Like all of the sort of the, the decade, decade and a half of, of momentum towards the West being, I mean, to the point where we were like, 
we can't have East and West All-Star teams. We can't <laughs> even have an Eastern Conference, Western Conference, like uh, a, a playoff tournament organized around, around yeah. a conference because the East was so bad to suddenly having a situation where um, they're, they're, the East might have like four of the six best teams in the league. Well, to answer your previous question, the reason the East is so bad is the Knicks. It's everything is the Knicks. <laughs> everything is the Knicks' fault. The Bulls a little bit, but those are you know two franchises that yeah. deserve some blame. But Vincent, I guess last thought on this is that it's not only feels odd that the East is good and and interesting, but just for the modern NBA, it feels odd and and <laughs> and amazing that you're going to have hopefully these these Eastern Conference semifinal series where all the teams and fan bases have the um, reasonable expectation that they're going to win and it would be reasonable for all of them to be disappointed if they if they lose. Like this kind yeah. of level of parity and uncertainty going into the playoffs is right. like, thank thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. You go go team by team. I think the... The biggest catastrophes potentially would be the Celtics and the Raptors because it has so much to do with their fates as organizations. Mm-hmm. You know, like Kyrie Irving seems ready to book a flight today, <laughs> and uh, and nobody can quite divine what Kawhi Leonard is ever thinking. And so you just like it, 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 it just seems to matter so much that they do well. Um, I, I mean, again. I'm a Knicks fan, which means I look for other teams, and like the team that I like to watch is the Sixers. So, like, I want them to go as far as possible because I don't want to imagine life without Ben Simmons. Uh, but Ugh. yeah, some of those teams will just, you know, it, it it'll be really really tough for them. But then you think about, you know, I say that about the Sixers, but you never know. Like this, all this timing stuff, how everything has sped up. It's like all of a sudden I'm now aware, more aware than I have been, you know, in past years that Ben Simmons is also a clutch client and does he want to go and like hang out in in Southern California it's like <laughs> everything is happening so fast I know Gene I'm sorry we gotta end I mean, this listen, segment before I, Ben Simmons yeah no no no, sorry, no, no. But, finish your thought sorry I don't want to hurt anybody <laughs> and and listen I want him to be in Philly because I plan to take the Amtrak and watch Man, him sometime he's amazing but, in real life um, it's just you know everything is seems to be so staked on the moment that like sure Giannis is happy that team is good but what happens if he like just I mean, the fact that we're talking about Kevin Durant leaving potentially, and I guess we'll talk about that later, but it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter now that the team is good necessarily. Like the person could just decide they want to do right. something I mean, else. That's what happened with with uh, so, Kawhi, right? It was like the, even Paul George, right? It's right, like I, right. eh, eh, not feeling it. I want to do something else <laughs> in my life. Right, right. I want to go play with my friends, or I want a, a new challenge, or whatever. So. I think this is a great opportunity to just like watch the games, which is my contention with you know the NBA now, where it's like we're always thinking about the future, but these Eastern playoffs are going to be a great time to just like watch the games and enjoy basketball yep. and see like great players play against other players. I'm really stoked for it. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our conversation about High Flying Bird, wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Vincent and I will discuss Kevin Durant. So, poor Kevin Durant. There are rumors about him going to the Knicks. He did not respond well. Sympathy. Should we be sympathetic? Not sympathetic. We'll discuss. Uh, To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. In his review, my colleague Dan Coyce called Steven Soderbergh's new film High Flying Bird a kind of workplace heist movie with insurgent undertones. The movie, which just premiered on Netflix, is about basketball and features almost no basketball at all. It takes place during the middle of a long NBA lockout, and it starts with a five-minute conversation between agent Ray Burke, who is played by Andre Holland, who you might know from Moonlight. And his client, a first-round pick named Eric Scott, he is played by Melvin Gregg of American Vandal. Uh, Let's listen to a little bit of that conversation. 
See, he heard about the trouble. Meetings happening and no resolution. Everybody expecting something to come down to the wire like it always does, and the owners or the players to fold. But if they didn't, wonder how people are going to survive. Then he scared you, describing how a lockout doesn't affect the Stephs and the Durants. They got that long money. It's going to take a minute before it affects their daily life. But those check-to-check fellas, the ones just starting out, the rookies, he said, use the term freshman. Mm Mm-hmm. He saw you panicking and he offered you some dumb interest loan from his bank. At that moment, you should have asked yourself, hmm, what's his angle? Why is he being so damn generous to me? And then you should have said, hey, man, I'm doing all right, you know. My agent, who also isn't being paid during the lockout, by the way, told me don't take a loan unless I can pay for it. At which point I would have said, I, being you in this case, said that's stupid. That's right, Eric, you said that's stupid. Vincent, a high-flying bird, teaches us some important lessons about loan sharks. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, the avoidance of them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it's about sports and race and, and business and very self-consciously. So um, what did you make of the movie? I liked it. There are certain th- threads that I'm still trying to tug at to try to, th- there are some certain things that I'm not sure that I liked about it or I thought cohered, but I thought it was awesome. Terrell Alvin McCraney, you mentioned Moonlight, the guy who wrote the play on which Moonlight the movie is based. Um, Terrell Alvin McCraney, he wrote this movie, he wrote the screenplay. And it's just, it's wonderfully written, great uh, dialogue, I thought, a great sort of musical pace that kind of uh, fits with the kind of whimsical way in which it's uh, filmed, uh, largely on iPhones, by the way, which is pretty cool. yeah, when you like, there are certain uh, angles when you just like see it's the exact aspect ratio of an iPhone, and it's just kind of like, oh wow, I don't know, it was a, a kind of a, a nice touch. But um, there are lots of threads about sort of how athletes go about their lives. Like um, the Ray character has a, um, he's kind of haunted, or people keep mentioning his cousin Gavin, who um, uh, didn't work out in the NBA for, for reasons that uh, I guess should be left unspoiled, but, you know, trying to reconcile that with the, the Eric plot line and the, and I was trying to figure some of that stuff out. I wasn't sure if it totally all worked together, but um, I thought an awesome movie about what's increasingly important in the, uh, in sports generally and the NBA uh, specifically. So I, I was into it. I watched it. I watched it once and a half. I watched the second half of it again this morning because it was just kind of fun. Yeah, there was um, there was the thing about the way his cousin didn't work out that didn't uh, that you want to leave unspoiled. Um, almost could have been a movie unto itself, right? It was yeah. said like it was like right. it was said in passing, and I was like, oh, that's an interesting. That was not where I thought that was going to go. That's a whole yeah, other thing. Um, and I think that's like yeah. one of the to the uh, one of the things the movie has going forward is that there's a ton of ideas in it, and a, and like in the corners and the crevices of the movie, there are all these um, s- sort of really interesting things being raised. Um, but but almost like too many ideas in some cases. Like you almost want a right. lot of them to have more breathing room. Uh, and and I think just the notion of setting it during a lock a lockout is always is like really fascinating i'm surprised we haven't seen that done before because um lockout right. sports lockouts tend to be the place tend to be the times in which like all of the labor and race um dynamics of professional sports become the most like they become foregrounded right well, this movie has come out at a very fortuitous time given that we just you know passed the nba trade deadline with all of the um conversation we just had about player agency and and player movement but also the government shutdown and this notion of a powerful and unfeeling entity not particularly caring <laughs> if um you know people get their checks um and and kind of the the way that that um that happens and the way that um uh it it's resolved and um i was a little bit hardened to hear you guys both kind of allude to the fact that there are some threads in this movie that aren't quite resolved because I am generally the guy in the movie who like has to lean over and ask like, what the hell just happened? What's going on here? And I found this movie like pretty confusing. Mm -hmm. There were, that's definitely true. There were parts that were hard to follow. There were things that get mentioned in the beginning that don't get resolved by the end. But I think, you know, I'm feeling pretty generous towards it. I think it is a movie of ideas, like you said, Gene, and these are ideas that I feel grateful are like out in the world. You know, we've seen more movies about the business side of sports 
Um, I had actually forgotten that Steven Soderbergh was going to direct Moneyball um, until uh, Bennett Miller eventually Mm. took it over. But you kind of get the sense of like this is – Steven Soderbergh's like redo or like opportunity to to take that on, but we haven't really seen a movie, Vincent, about the business side of sports from kind of a pro labor perspective, or that actually that takes on um, you know questions of of race. Like this is not Draft Day, <laughs> starring Kevin or Jerry Costner. Maguire <laughs> or Jerry Maguire. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Yeah, it's interesting because it it is totally right. Pro labor, very aware of race in its politics, but I think. What's really interesting about that is that it situates all of that in the person of Ray, who is this middleman, essentially, right? And we kind of think, we we forget, except in the actual NBA, where it has suddenly become foregrounded with clutch. We forget that there are all of these entities that skirt the line between uh, ownership and labor, these agents and managers and people who are interested in the money that the players make. Um, by the definition of their roles, but also so also care about them and want them to make as much money as they can. So they're kind of always in touch with the player, but also kind of a little bit closer to the to the league than is maybe always in the player's interest. And it, there are moments there in in the movie where that is foregrounded, right? Where um, the player kind of pointedly says, "Oh, but you stand to make money from this decision or this thing," you know. Um, and that's that was really interesting to me, uh, just because. Uh, I still don't understand what's up with Clutch. I don't see how it's yeah, how legal. Is the, how is and, Clutch legal? It's one of the weirdest things. It doesn't make Man, any sense. so crazy. Yeah, and I think that as soon as... Le- yeah, I have no clue how it's legal. And my uh, suspicion, I guess, is that at some point, probably after LeBron's departure, the league will find a way to legislate this fuzzy thing out of existence, uh, the, the, the best friend-owned sports agency. Um, but... Uh, it was really great to see in dramatic fashion that person, you know, kind of in the middle on this border between uh, ownership and the league and the player, uh, that person be foregrounded and have some flesh put on on that character. I, I really enjoyed that part of it. So I appreciate the fact that you don't want to spoil the movie for the people. But there are a couple of things I wanted to talk about um, that I think – it's fine if you listen to this before you you watch the movie. But if you really want to be totally unspoiled, then plug your ears for a few minutes. Um, the first <laughs> is that it's always nice when a movie doesn't screw up social media so badly. And I felt like the way that the the kind of one of the central moments in, in the movie is this social media beef between um, Eric and the rival player on his own team they're both coming into the league and it leads up to this kind of one confrontation this this one-on-one moment um i was wondering if you mm-hmm. thought gene that the way that that played out was uh realistic or um kind of it, it does capture the sense in which so much of our interest in the game as fans sort of does does play out on social media now. I thought it was like the most in a lot of ways like the most plausible part of the movie, right? Um uh just like I was I was you know is the, the, the I thought they actually did a really good job of, of recreating the scene. Um the way it would the way it would play out was like, oh here's this video of these two guys going at it at some on some random basketball court somewhere in the Bronx. Um uh and all the kids reaction I think the kids reaction was like a yeah. thing that sold me on it. Okay, that's exactly what would happen, right? <laughs> Everyone all the kids going like oh totally. um <laughs> um, and it is, it is. I mean, basketball maybe more than any other sport has become a, a sport that is uh, consumed almost like through like. I mean, Vincent sort of alluded to this before, but like um, so much of the way we uh, consume basketball content is like is, is like unrelated to the actual basketball itself. Now, I mean, it's like um, uh, we we follow the Twitter, the Twitter, uh, we follow the Twitter streams. The timelines of like stars and and the way they subtweeted each other and I mean all of that it seemed completely legitimate. Um, uh, I sort of didn't quite buy the monetization part of it. Like I don't know if yeah, that definitely did not buy that. Yeah, like I was like <laughs> I don't know how this part holds together, but I thought that yeah. the um, actual execution of that part of it, the of the of the the literal like you know this video this that video if that video happened if like. Uh, 
if KD and <laughs> and Russell Westbrook were like playing ball yeah, at yeah. The UCLA, I mean, even even if and, he, <laughs> and I'm sure they have like doing some UCLA run of the summer, it would be like scrutinized. It would be one of those things that we it was like the Zapruder film, and people are like, oh, how are they? What is their body language in relation to each other? And like you know. Um, I mean, that, right now, I mean, we do this every summer. It's like we see all these workout videos in which you see some run with, like, uh, you know, uh, LeBron James and, and, and Carmelo Anthony and, and Russell Westbrook. We're just playing ball at the Y together. And it's like, man, like, and just like there's all this. And, it just, and those videos get <laughs> crazy views. It's like all these things. And you're like, you're trying to read the subtext. You're like, wait, what? So Bron and KD are hanging out in the summer playing ball? Like, what is this about? Like, yeah, it's just weird. And well, that, this that is the, completely plausible. This is one of the central questions of the movie. And we'll get into this a little bit in our next segment too, about this upstart football league is that does the superstructure of the NBA do the team names to the history uh, does fandom around the teams? How much does that matter? Or could we imagine an alternate universe in which you strip all that stuff away and you just have the players. And I think that, you know, we don't get a, necessarily an answer in the movie, but I don't think that to to your point, Gene, I don't think people would pay to watch guys play in Vegas, like an exhibition game. Like that that to me is totally implausible. Right. That's right. And to speak of, you know, the la- the labor angle too is that like maybe you would if like Gene says, it was in fact Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. But you go down <laughs> one level, right? If it's Tobias Harris and whoever, you know, it's like Chris uh, Middleton no, no, and Chris Middleton. Precisely right. It's just like immediately I'm not going to watch that. And so I think there is a sense in which and I think this also goes back to our thing about these blockbuster trades. Right. There is a sense in which there is a much greater freedom for about 25 to 30 guys. But then there are 450 people in the league. And those guys get um, thrown into the trades to make being, to make the money match exactly. for the big guys, um, and it's their lives just as much as anybody else's. So I mean, that's the thing. the 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 larger structures do tend to protect those people. So it's you know, as one with thing, everything mixed. One thing I want to ask you guys is, um, I got sort of uh, spiky, vi- spikely vibes from this movie a little bit. Um, there were sort of these uh-huh. weird characterizations. Yeah. Um, like uh, the 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 very involved, very churchy mother slash agent, um, yeah. <laughs> and you know Bill Duke's character um, with that like a little yeah. refrain like I love uh, God and always black people. It's they all those felt like very yeah. spiky touches to me. Um, yeah, they felt and more... so did those interviews with the real players. By the way, oh yeah, absolutely, that was absolutely. I totally got that. Yeah, um, I, I was actually surprised. I was like. This is, I mean, you didn't see the dolly shot, so you know it wasn't a Spike movie, but there were parts of it. Um, and also, like, I think that the dialogue didn't sound like, you know, Spike has that 60-year-old curmudgeon thing happens. Like, no one talks like this. Um, uh, right. And so the dialogue sounded much more on point than that. Uh, but there were moments of, um, in which people were sort of stating very explicitly their reason, their, like, their life motivations, which is, like, a very yeah. spiky thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was not subtle. Yeah. Um, I was also a little confused about why Carl Anthony Towns wasn't looking into the camera. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> where, where are you looking? Like, why are you looking into the, into the sky? And he's um, feet tall, so was, <laughs> even if he was sitting down, you still have to be pretty. The camera had to be pretty high up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the last thing I wanted to ask you guys about, and this is also a spoiler, but um, the book Revolt of the Black Athlete by Harry Edwards takes on this kind of totemic mm-hmm. importance. Gene, you mm-hmm. were wondering on, on Twitter how – how one could read that whole book while during the duration of a shower, which is an interesting question. But um, curious what you guys thought <laughs> about. <laughs> um, you need to read this like I just did. <laughs> curious what you guys thought about the role that that book played, that Harry Edwards played. Just full disclosure, I have not read The Revolt of the Black Athlete. I'm familiar with Harry Edwards' Edwards. work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Vincent, do you want to you go? What, what did you think about the way that it, the the role that it plays in the film. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting because it sort of did an unraveling of the movie in reverse. Like it's the very last thing that happens and you can kind of under, to to Gene's point about, you know, the movie being full of ideas. uh, You can kind of read backwards and say, okay, this, this, this 
movie is a dramatization of these ideas that all kind of exist and are expounded upon throughout the movie, as we've said, sort of unsubtly. So I think that's cool to me, just to admit, like, here's the idea set, and to, to at some point just open that up. Um, it also the gives the audience book homework, recommendation right? is very funny. <laughs> right, like, right. right, right. Yeah, it's like, this is this is this movie is a reading list, and the, the reading list is this one book. So, I mean, that's kind of cool. Um, so I liked it, but exactly, yeah, Zazie Beats is a insane speed reader. <laughs> it's also, well, as my friend Sean said on Twitter, perhaps uh, it was like a shampoo day, so he was taking extra long time, like, you know, work, working it into the edges of, ends of his hair. Um, also, it, to, right. you know, one of the things that made that sort of spiky to me was like, it was like a, a, a step below message, you know, like yeah. at the end of a... A Spike Lee <laughs> movie, but it was like basically right, the right, same right, right. thing. But it was like it was a little more uh, show don't tell. But it was sort of the same thing, right? Right. Yeah, Harry Edwards was the guy behind the Olympic project for human rights, the architect of the protests at the '68 Olympics with John Carlos and and Tommy Smith has been a really hugely important figure in uh, sports and civil rights for the last 50 years, and probably is not that widely known a figure outside of people who specifically study um, this stuff. And so it felt extremely like self-conscious as far as like, you should Mm -hmm. know, you audience member should know who this person is. You should look, (laughs) you should look at this book. And yeah, it's like, I I think for me, I'm, I'm more of a uh, show don't tell kind of guy Mm -hmm. in life, but this was a movie that, has no uh, no interest in being in being subtle, so it's certainly true to itself. And I'm not mad at like trying to get people to know and appreciate and understand what Harry Edwards is about. Right, absolutely. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The opening weekend of the opening season of the Alliance of American Football began with victories for the San Antonio Commanders. Orlando Apollos, Birmingham Iron, and Arizona Hotshots over the San Diego Fleet, Atlanta Legends, Memphis Express, and Salt Lake Stallions. The one thing we should all agree on here is that these team names sound like they're from an unlicensed 8-bit video game. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's like Tech Mobile, but not, yeah, like the, the off-brand Tech Mobile. Right. Uh, other takeaways from this first set of games include that former Jets uh, draftee Christian Hackenberg is still not a pro-quality quarterback, no matter what level of pro football we're talking about. He also had a hard time remembering <laughs> that he was mic'd up, if we can hear a little bit of that. Here they come, turn along, and they get the job done again. How the fuck did he hit it? <laughs> Speaking of being mic'd up, the AAF broadcast includes chatter from the replay booth, which is admirably transparent. Okay, so what? So what's the uh, ruling on the field? It was a catch, correct? Okay, so well, here's what I've got. I've got only one foot in, plus loss of control. So we are going to go incomplete pass on this play. I could see that coming to to the NFL, maybe. Maybe. Uh, Gene, let's start with the overall (laughs) proposition here, as opposed to the USFL, the XFL. The AAF wants to work with the NFL rather than against it. Uh, It sees itself as filling a niche, that niche being, let's be football on television (laughs) when there's no other football on television. (laughs) What do you think of that idea? And do you think this league has a chance to succeed where others have failed? I mean, it seems like if those two other leagues... Um, well, not those aren't the only ones, but if they failed in a in a climate that was much more, uh, I think, m- much less fraught for football, then like I can't understand what the the long term prospects are for the AAF, right? I mean, like people are people are really thinking about football in a very different way now, like much more critical of it. It's a much more fraught fandom, um, um, and it and even still, football is like this this like 
saturated market, right? I mean, like, we still have, I mean, there's no football on right now. Um, exactly. Now but, you're getting it. <laughs> but, uh, but <laughs> like, how much football can this country, like, can, can like, networks bear? I just don't, I don't, I, it seems so weird, like, you know, the ratings sort of rebounded for the NFL this year after being down last year. You know, it was all the, oh, is it, is it the protests? Is the, um, they sort of rebounded this year. Um, but it doesn't seem like the long-term trend line for the NFL is, um, is that, uh, like, is that, you should be that optimistic about it? That people should also be like, we can also then have a totally separate league with, with lower quality play um, running at a time <laughs> when no one else is, you know, when, when neither college football or the NFL are, are happening. Yeah, the interesting thing to me would be if they went all the way and like made their league like alt football. That to me is the void. Like people that don't want to watch football for these reasons. Um, yes, like the one slide pitch is like there's no football on right now. Uh, but there's like it would be so much more interesting if it was like, you know, cruelty free football. Like, all the things that we talk about with football, like, about the helmets, like, they need to be different, or, like, the hits need to be drastic. Whatever it is that we talk about, like, it, the football that people would be fine letting their, you know, little league son play or whatever, um, somebody should make a pro league like that. That's just, well, there like, is super that fast because nobody's, league. yeah. Uh, oh, so yeah. I think maybe that niche is already taken. Like, the, the, the big maybe, highlight maybe. from the weekend was um, there was uh, defensive player Sean Washington um, sacked right. quarterback Mike Berkovicki uh, and his helmet popped off like rock and, and sock like and robots. Terrible. It was horrible, yeah. So Oof. maybe they'll lean into that, like decapitation <laughs> is, is what we'll go for. Even worse football. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. It also made me wonder, too, whether, what's the difference in the gap, right, between second tier football and second tier other sports hmm. uh for like i was watching duke virginia the other day and like sure zion did some amazing things in that game but there were just lots of bank shots there were too many bank shots that did not <laughs> seem like they were on purpose like it just like it was so far and i don't know if like you know whenever the g league becomes you know televisable maybe we'll get to test that proposition but it's like this kind of just looked like football to me in a way that second tier basketball is immediately so much worse huh, this was just football so maybe you know maybe that's fine and then and and to all they need is the one slide that says you know how about march you know and that, that's <laughs> the only thing about it and like maybe that's what makes it fine because it just looks like football it looks but like it, it's, it's... With, with bootleg names <laughs> so you're saying it looks more like plausibly like passable professional football than like Right, preseason NFL football does. I don't think that's true. Do you think that's true? That that second tier football is more clearly football than than second tier basketball is clearly basketball. Gene? I don't. And one of the things I about the second tierness of football is that, like, I think the NFL is actually really bad at at evaluating talent. Right? I mean, like, I mean, sure. Um, and so, like, the 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 actual sort of like objective gap in ability between somebody who might like have washed out of the league, uh, or because they're on a bad team or, or like bad situation, and somebody. It, who's somebody who's like a, a starter for four or five years is like, like what does that even mean? You know what I mean? Like how many first round picks like wash out? I mean, or don't or not in the league in three or four years? You know what I mean? Like it's just there's talent out there, or or, or sort of or what people assume is talent. You know, that's like floating out there. I, I think you could it probably could be well the, more passable. In the, the issue is so with Kaepernick just perpetually not getting signed. Right. Mm-hmm. By any teams, the scandal there was that the guys who were getting sa- signed were really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, right. other than other than Kaepernick, <laughs> I don't feel like there's a lot of freely floating available quarterback. Not quarterback talent, talent right? And but running back talent or, or or line talent. I mean, sure, but so much of the quality of our perception of a football game being good is dependent on quarterback play. And Mm -hmm. like Michael David Smith of pro football talk said, the quality of play is comparable to the second halves of preseason games (laughs) with players who look like they're about good enough to be on NFL practice squads. So take, take that for what it's worth. I mean, on the business, maybe my football talent, eye just isn't as good as it is for, for basketball. Maybe that's what it is. Cause it just like, to me, it was like, okay, football. What was the highest scoring game over this weekend? Orlando scored like 40 points wow. and they ran the Philly special. Oh, nice. Yeah. He's got more behind, plays. <laughs> behind Steve Spurrier. I mean, the biggest stars in the in this league are the, are the, the coaches, coaches yeah. Spurrier among them. But from the business side 
Um, the league was started by Charlie Ebersol, whose father, Dick Ebersol, was one of the minds behind the XFL. Um, he has come into this not wanting to make the same mistakes as the XFL. Um, and I think that... <laughs> which, which constellation of mistakes is he talking about? That's a fair point. But I do feel like this is not obviously going to fail, which is like a bar <laughs> that, most of, that most of these leagues <laughs> fail to clear. Um, and the XFL did um, have some innovations that percolated into the league, um, particularly around the way that games are, are filmed. Skycam players being mic'd up. And there are rules mm-hmm. in the AF um, that do feel like they could um, make their way into the NFL. We listen to um, the replay booth. We um, have not yet talked about, but there aren't extra points in this league. Um, there are no onside kicks. And instead, if a team is trailing mm. at the end of the game, they can do a fourth and 12 play from their own 28-yard line to retain possession. I think that's a great rule. I just The onside kick is that's just... That's cool. How, how many times has the onside kick ever recovered? It just it feels so desperate. And so, oh, whatever. So it's cool that they're trying okay, different yeah. stuff. Um, it doesn't seem, other than the team names, like it's too, too gimmicky. Mm. <laughs> Um, Trent Richardson is involved. <laughs> it's like nice to see that he's yeah, he's still, he's still got a job. Like that that gives me like a warm and fuzzy feeling. So I guess I'm I'm in a I'm in a wait and see mode. But I again I don't feel like it's inevitable that this is going to fail. I guess what let me revise. I think that back to back to the original point about <laughs> back to the original point about about football and the, where we're at with the game fandom of football. If you like know and care about uh, head injuries and the toll that it takes is irrational. And I think a lot of what that irrationality <laughs> comes from is fandom. Mm-hmm. My fandom of the Saints, my fandom of, of LSU. Mm-hmm. It feels, this is a cop-out and I will admit as such, but it feels like in some ways it's out of my control. It's like, what could I do? Bud root, I was for, born bud root for the right, Saints yeah. and LSU. But mm-hmm. like, it is definitely in my control whether I root for the <laughs> San Diego fleet. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that I think is missing <laughs> from, this, from this league is trying to build up a football league from nothing with teams that have no fans seems like that seems particularly fraught at this point. In, it's like astroturfing, right? no pun intended, I guess, but it's like this astroturfing of, uh, of football fandom, right? Um, yeah, we all get sort of get grandfathered into these these fandoms, right? Because, I mean, it's football more than any, more than, any of the, uh, more than the other professional sports is like about is especially about the teams, right? I mean, because the players are a lot of ways of really anonymous, um, like right. you know they're interchangeable. I mean, there's so much turnover from season to season. Like fandom outside of like your you know your superstar quarterbacks, maybe your superstar wide receivers. Uh, most people don't like you know like couldn't pick their favorite players out of a, of a out of a lineup. You know, like if they were just walking out, if they, they couldn't pick their favorite players out of a lineup, and so um, this these teams won't be able to rely even on like, if there are sort of some quasi name players like Trent Richardson, like Trent Richardson on the team, um, even that won't be enough, right? Like you sort of need the social momentum of fandom to make this, to make these like the San Diego fleet uh, plausible. Well, it just seems like a really bad idea to put teams in existing markets. Like maybe, maybe it's true that San Antonio and Birmingham are really starved Mm-hmm. For, for professional football, like They're I can see that football, like you know, those they're football crazy places, right? Yeah, I can see that places. making sense. But putting teams in San Diego and Atlanta, only two of the eight franchises are in NFL cities, but that just makes no sense. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, that seems like asking for. I mean, because yeah, then you'd terrible. actually have to your point, like the the t- t- you would actually be able to compare what top flight right. football talent football play looks like versus you know, I mean, it would be really really appreciable. Uh, I mean, you know, Vincent is in New York, so he doesn't. Maybe that's why he can't tell the difference between practice squad players. I don't, yeah, I've been watching the Jets. It's all the same to me. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Now it is time for after balls, and I am I am going to do an after ball, and I will force Gene and Vincent to listen to me uh, as I <laughs> deliver uh, what uh, might sound like a hot take, but I can assure you that it's not. Uh, but before I do that, um, I wanted to uh, give our after ball name for the week, and Gene on Twitter, your username is Deadlift Shrimp, which. <laughs> <laughs> is one of uh, the all-time great Twitter puns. I but I, I wanted to ask, did you know that when Deadlift Shrimp was playing for the University of Washington in the 1980s, the coach at Rival Oregon nicknamed him White Magic <laughs> <laughs> because of his failure to uh, trade for Anthony Davis. No, because of his uh, versatile all-court game. White he was magic. like 6'9", uh, had like a little bit of floor yeah. game, could shoot a bit. Well, Magic couldn't shoot, but yeah. yeah. It will be a real milestone in this country when we have a black deadlift and not just, <laughs> not just a white magic. But, uh, but for now, let's, uh, let us celebrate white magic. Um, so, okay, here's my, my hot take. Uh, and I, I'm going to try to c- convince you that it is less hot than it seems. And, and that is that Zion Williamson going to be the number one pick in the draft. He's having a truly astounding season at Duke. One of the greatest athletes mm-hmm. ever to play basketball. I think the best comparison for him is Julius Randle. What? <laughs> okay. Julius Randle. This is a very hot team. Of the New Orleans Pelicans. Wow. So Zion is shooting 68% from the field, which is insane. Vincent watched him on television. That's how good he is. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah. The the level of, of hype for him is getting out of control. He's averaging 22 points a game, nine rebounds, two steals, two blocks, a couple plays every game where you cannot believe what you just saw. Julius Randle, by, uh, by contrast, got renounced by the Lakers last offseason in one of their not stronger personnel moves, but they just wanted to free up more money to sign LeBron who you might recall is the guy who was Zion Williamson before there was a Zion Williamson. Mm -hmm. But Julius Randle is not (laughs) just a guy the Lakers dumped. He was the number two player in the country coming out of high school in 2013, just like Zion is the number two player in the country coming out of high school in 2018. Consensus after his Duke teammate, RJ Barrett, although we might shift those rankings around a little bit now that Mm -hmm. we've seen a few more data points. Uh, And Randall's numbers, they weren't as good as Williamson's in college, but he did lead Kentucky to the national title game. He's also left-handed, like Zion, and he's huge. He's 6'9", 250, compared to Zion, is like 6'7", and 800 pounds, or whatever he is, 6'7", 285. (laughs) But Randall's really powerful. He's really fast. He can take guys off the dribble. And my guy, Julius Randall, is just 24 years old. He is putting up huge numbers this year. Well, nobody's paying attention. He's scoring 20 and grabbing nine rebounds in 29 minutes a game. Uh, so what I'm is saying... He? he is. It's crazy. Wow. Backing up. So he's the backup on the, on the Pelicans, right? Yeah, he's six men. Wow. Uh, I mean, he'll probably play more now that wow. Anthony Davis is playing like 25 minutes a game. Um, so what I'm trying to say here is that nobody in basketball plays more like Zion Williamson than Julius Randle. And Julius Randle <laughs> is showing that you can have a lot of success in the NBA playing like Julius Randle. <laughs> And that if Zion Williamson had the same <laughs> amount of success as Julius Randle, he'd be averaging 20 and 10, which is not a bad thing to average. So I just want to say congratulations to Zion Williamson for earning the Jul- Julius Randle comp. <laughs> and fingers crossed that one day he'll be as good as the guy Lakers renounced so that they could pay LeBron. What I, the other way that you could interpret wow. what I just said is that maybe there's nobody you can compare to Zion Williamson. <laughs> and if Julius Randle is the, the best comparison, then that's saying that maybe you're incomparable. But I also just wanted to tell people that Julius Randle is having a good great, season. Right? Somebody, somebody needed good. to say it. You had to do some log rolling for the Pelicans. That was a real service. Uh, thank you for not laughing. <laughs> well, you did kind of laugh We did at laugh. Me, we actually did laugh. <laughs> thank Only you a little for, bit. Thank you for not laughing louder. Uh, that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Ford. Gene Demby, thank you for being here. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me. Vincent Cunningham, thank you. So much fun. Uh, to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty and thanks for listening. Something that's not boring. 
a laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.